Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Please support our independent journalism at democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! It is disastrous that the Security Council was again prevented from rising to this moment to uphold its clear responsibilities in the face of this grave crisis threatening human lives and threatening regional and international peace and security. Israel's continuing to attack Gaza after the United States vetoed a U.N. Security Council resolution demanding an immediate ceasefire. We'll get response and speak to a doctor in Gaza who works at one of the last functioning hospitals in the besieged enclave as the death toll in Gaza reaches 18,000. We are dying from starvation. From every, everything we are dying now. All over, actually, they, they send these rockets over our heads everywhere, every time. Please, please stop this war against us. Please stop genocide against us. Stop this war, please, please. I beg you. Plus, the State Department's bypassing Congress to send nearly 14,000 rounds of tank ammunition to Israel and the University of Pennsylvania president, Liz McGill, resigns following a contentious congressional hearing on anti-Semitism. Is this part of a broader effort to restrict pro-Palestinian speech on campus? All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israel's unrelenting assault on the Gaza Strip continues as the death toll has reached 18,000 Palestinians killed in just over two months. Airstrikes rocked the Nusrat and Mahazi refugee camps in central Gaza overnight. At least 23 people died in Mahazi. Airstrikes also struck at least two residential homes in Rafah. Meanwhile, the ground battle is pushing ahead in Khan Yunus, which is under heavy bombardment. Gazan women say Israeli soldiers forced them to leave their husbands and sons behind and flee their Gaza City homes. They spoke from the Al-Aqsa Hospital in central Deir Abala, where they were taking refuge. They made us go to the south. They did not let us wait for our husbands. They said, go to the south from here, and that is it. And they made us leave. They lied to us, saying the road is safe, but they were shooting us throughout the way. We asked the Israeli interrogator where our male relatives. He said they are gone. No one is left. We asked about the children. He said all of them are gone. Palestine is gone. Gaza is gone. 
The mass displacement and war on the besieged territory has led to a public health disaster. The UN's World Food Program warns half of Gaza's population of over two million people starving and that nine out of ten people are not able to eat every day. As clean water becomes more scarce, diarrhea, skin infections, acute viral hepatitis, scabies, measles um, are multiplying. Earlier today, the World Health Organization passed a resolution calling for immediate humanitarian aid access and an end to fighting in Gaza. In the occupied West Bank and Jerusalem, usually busy streets and commercial areas are empty today in observance of a general strike for Gaza. Global actions are also taking place today, including marches and calls to refrain from buying anything. Meanwhile, a U.N. peacekeeping force in Lebanon's warning the likelihood of a wider conflict's increasing amidst escalating cross-border violence between Israel and Hezbollah. The U.N. General Assembly will hold a special session Tuesday after Egypt and Mauritania invoked Resolution 377, known as Uniting for Peace. The move came in response to the U.S. on Friday, again vetoing a U.N. Security Council resolution calling for an urgent ceasefire in Gaza. Resolution 377 is designed to be deployed when the Security Council fails to, quote, exercise its primary responsibility for the maintenance of international police and security. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan called for the U.N. body to be reformed Saturday following the U.S. veto. With the torment in Gaza, we believe that this helpless and dysfunctional structure of the United Nations will be questioned all over the world. Look, I'm saying very openly, nothing can continue as business as usual after Gaza. Meanwhile, the U.S. State Department bypassed congressional review to approve the emergency sale of over $100 million in tank ammunition to Israel. We'll deal with this issue later in the broadcast. The president of the University of Pennsylvania has stepped down following intense Republican-led backlash after her handling of anti-Semitism on campus and her contentious testimony before Congress last week. President Liz McGill's resignation Saturday, followed by that of UPenn Board of Trustees Chair Scott Bach came amidst a mounting attack on students calling for Palestinian rights on campus. Right-wing New York Congressmember Elise Stefanik, who grilled McGill during her congressional testimony, wrote on social media, one down, two to go, as Stefanik also seeks the ouster of Harvard President Claudine Gay and MIT President Sally Kornbluth, both who testified at the congressional hearing. In Dubai, members of the oil producer alliance OPEC Plus have been blocking progress toward a global agreement to phase out the use of fossil fuels as the UN's COP28 climate summit in Dubai barrels towards its conclusion Tuesday. Led by Saudi Arabia, delegates from OPEC countries backed by coal, oil and gas lobbyists have rejected any draft text that even mentions fossil fuels. This is Democratic Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey speaking from the sidelines of the COP28 talk Sunday. COP should conclude with a final statement that says that the world wants to end this addiction. It wants to phase out fossil fuels. OPEC does not want to phase out 
fossil fuels. They made that very clear yesterday. On Saturday, hundreds march within the U.N. climate summit site, calling for an end to the burning of fossil fuels, as well as a ceasefire in Gaza. Here to say how mega corporations and fossil fuels industry is melting the planet. We're here to defend and phase out fossil fuels. Demonstrations at COP28 have been met with heavy censorship. Protesters saw their movement sharply restricted, were barred from displaying national flags, and were given strict limits on what their signs could say and what slogans they were allowed to chant. Another group rallied to demand the release of pro-democracy activists detained in the United Arab Emirates and Egypt were not allowed to hold up signs bearing the names of the political prisoners, but they uttered those names anyway. A Human Rights Watch researcher called the crackdown a, quote, shocking level of censorship in a space that had been guaranteed to have basic freedoms protected, like freedom of expression, assembly and association, unquote. The Texas Supreme Court has temporarily blocked a lower court ruling that would have allowed a 20-week pregnant woman to get an abortion. Ken Paxton, Texas's Republican attorney general, intervened to stop the emergency medical procedure and threatened to prosecute any abortion providers involved in giving 31-year-old Kate Cox an abortion. Doctors have told her carrying the non-viable pregnancy to term could make it impossible for her to have more children. Cox's lawyer at the Center for Reproductive Rights says even if the Texas Supreme Court allows the lower court order to stay in place, the delay in treatment could mean, quote, justice delayed will be justice denied. Meanwhile, a pregnant woman in Kentucky is suing over her state's near-total ban on abortions. The lawsuit argues the ban violates Kentucky's constitution. The plaintiff is also seeking class action status so that any positive outcome can be applied to all pregnant people in Kentucky who need or want an abortion. This is Rebecca Gibran, head of Planned Parenthood Kentucky, which is also a plaintiff in the case. In America, every eight hours, a woman dies from pregnancy complications. And evidence is correlating abortion bans as a key factor driving increasing maternal and infant death rates. Tragically, Kentucky has one of the highest maternal death rates in this country. A judge in Michigan has sentenced the Oxford High School mass shooter to multiple life sentences without parole. Ethan Crumbly was just 15 when he opened fire on the school in November of 2021, killing four people, injuring seven others. This is a former student and survivor speaking at the sentencing hearing. I, Riley Franz, am a survivor of gun violence. I, Riley Franz, am a survivor of a terrible ec epidemic caused by a broken system. But I refuse to be known as a victim at the hands of an individual with no regard for others. His selfishness will not consume my identity. I am so much more than a victim. In Argentina, far-right libertarian Javier Millet has been sworn in as president. He delivered an inaugural speech Sunday from Buenos Aires. No hay alternativa al ajuste. There is no alternative to adjustment, and there is no other alternative to shock. Naturally, this will have a negative impact on the level of activity, employment, real wages, and the number of poor.
Javier Millet is a climate crisis denier who's proposed banning abortion and lifting restrictions on guns. He's also vowed to shut down Argentina's central bank, replace the nation's currency with the U.S. dollar. And the children of the jailed Iranian human rights leader Nargis Mohammadi accepted the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of their mother at a ceremony in Oslo, Norway, Sunday. 17-year-old twins, Kiana and Ali Ramani, who live in France with their father, read their mother's speech, which was smuggled out of Tehran's Evin prison. This is Ali. The reality is that the regime of the Islamic Republic is at its lowest level of legitimacy and popular support, situated in a position of unstable equilibrium, and the emergence of any element as a catalyst for change will mark the final form of opposition policies and the transition from religious tyranny. Nargis Mohammadi started a new hunger strike the day of the Nobel ceremony in solidarity with the persecuted Baha'i religious minority in Iran. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show looking at allegations that universities have failed to address threats of violence against Jewish students following a contentious congressional hearing on anti-Semitism and a broader effort to restrict pro-Palestinian speech on campus. On Saturday, the University of Pennsylvania president, Elizabeth McGill, resigned her position over fallout from last Tuesday's House Education Committee hearing. UPenn board chair Scott Bach, who announced her resignation, he also resigned soon after. McGill was questioned, along with Harvard President Claudine Gay and MIT President Sally Kornbluth, by the right-wing Republican New York Congress member and Trump ally Elise Stefanik. This is Stefanik questioning Harvard President Gay first, then UPenn President McGill. It's a yes or no question. Let me ask you this. You are president of Harvard, so I assume you're familiar with the term intifada, correct? I've heard that term, yes. And you understand that the use of the term intifada in the context of the Israeli-Arab conflict is indeed a call for violent armed resistance against the state of Israel, including violence against civilians and the genocide of Jews. Are you aware of that? That type of hateful speech is personally abhorrent to me. Well, let me ask you this. Will admissions offers be rescinded or any disciplinary action be taken against students or applicants who say, from the river to the sea or intifada, advocating for the murder of Jews? As I've said, that type of hateful, reckless, offensive speech is personally abhorrent to me. Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. That's University of Pennsylvania President Elizabeth McGill. She announced her resignation Saturday and will remain a tenured law professor at UPenn. Major donors to the University of Pennsylvania had demanded McGill's resignation since September after she refused to cancel the Palestine Rights Literature Festival on campus. 
New York Republican Congress member Elise Stefanik herself faced scrutiny for campaign ads she ran last year that echoed Donald Trump and appeared to promote the white supremacist great replacement theory that Jews want to replace and disempower white Americans. She made similar comments after the mass shooting in Buffalo, New York, that was inspired by the great replacement theory. After news of McGill's resignation, Stefanik called for the ouster of the Harvard and MIT presidents, writing on social media, one down, two to go. She was echoed by Trump. Thank you, Elise. What a job she's done. You know, I watched the way she's very smart. I watched the way she was asking the questions. And they were asked in a very complex way. And these women, who I guess they're smart, but boy, that was, they were really dumb answers, weren't they? But they were asked in a very complex way, and these people had no idea what the hell they were doing. I said, you know, I think she's got to lose her job. I guess they're all going to be losing their job within the next day or two, but one down, two to go. This comes as Harvard President Claudine Gay has growing support. Some 600 professors signed a petition against calls for her to step down this weekend. The school's board of directors met Sunday. Congressmember Stefanik is a Harvard alumna and was removed from a Harvard advisory board in 2021 over her comments about voter fraud in the 2020 election that had, quote, no basis in evidence. For more, we're joined by Peter Beinert, editor-at-large of Jewish Currents, and as well an MSNBC contributor, and Omer Bartoff, a professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown University, the Israeli-American author of numerous books. His books include recently Genocide, the Holocaust in Israel-Palestine, First-Person History in Times of Crisis. Uh, he has been described by the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum as one of the world's leading specialists on the subject of genocide. Peter Beinert, let's begin with you. Your response to the congressional hearing uh, and the grilling of the three women presidents of MIT, Harvard and UPenn, and the resignation then of UPenn President McGill, as well as the chair of the Board of Trustees, Scott Bach, who announced her resignation, then resigned himself. This really isn't about those individual presidents. It's about the fact that given the extraordinary slaughter that's happening in Gaza, there is a movement on college campuses and across America for a ceasefire and to end American complicity in that slaughter. And in response to that, the effort is now to try to limit the ability of people who want to protest U.S. policy and support Palestinian rights from being able to organize on college campuses. So the, the reason that you're going after these presidents is to try to set a precedent and bring in people who will be much tougher on restricting the ability of students and faculty and others who want to organize politically against this war in Gaza. This is what this is about. And if you can talk about exactly what happened for people who missed it this past week, um, we just played an excerpt of the questioning by Stefanik. I mean, it went on for hours, the overall congressional testimony. But it came down to these points. And this is the critical point. 
She said, it's a yes or no question. Let me ask you this. You are president of Harvard, so I assume you are familiar with the term Antifada, correct? Um, and President Gay says, I've heard that term. Congressmember Stefanik says, you understand the use of the term Antifada in the context of the Israeli-Arab conflict is indeed a call for violent armed resistance against the state of Israel, including violence against civilians and the genocide of Jews. This was the question they were asked. Elaborate on that, Peter Beinart, and talk about their responses. Right. The, the premise of the question was just nonsense, right? The premise of the question is that intifada, which essentially means uprising, is the equivalent of an attempt at genocide at Jews. Intifada is, a, is actually a term that has been used even in uprising against Arab governments. Intifada can take nonviolent forms. The first intifada had a lot of nonviolence. The second intifada tragically involved suicide bombings, which were horrifying and totally immoral. But these were uprisings in the context of oppression. It's like saying of a Ukrainian uprising against, against Russians that also killed Russian civilians would be an attempt at Russian genocide. It makes no sense. But the problem was that these presidents, because they were not willing to contest the premise, because they were so lawyered up and defensive in their answers, that they, that they basically accepted the premise and then were put in this ridiculous position where they didn't challenge, when they didn't say it would be unacceptable for people to call for the genocide of Jews. Of course it would be unacceptable for people to call in mass protest for the genocide of Jews, but that's not what was happening. I want to bring Omar Bartov into this discussion. You're considered by the Holocaust Museum one of the leading scholars on genocide. And go to this second point. Congressmember Stefanik um, was asking the college presidents. She said, well, let me ask you this. Will admission offers be rescinded or any disciplinary action be taken against students or applicants who say from the river to the sea or antifada advocating the murder of Jews, equating from the river to the sea and antifada with the murder of Jews? Um, can you respond to this and also explain that term and how it's been used um, by both Hamas, uh, but also protesters and the Likud party in Israel? Well, hi, and uh, thank you for having me. Um, uh, first of all, I want to agree with what uh, Peter was saying. Um, I think that this, this whole debate is so um, off kilter. Um, the, the terms that are being used are being misused and, and, and are not being challenged, um, uh, by these, uh, three presidents who should have been better prepared, not by their lawyers, but actually to have studied the issue itself and to have spoken about how they think about it. Um, using the term intifada is, of course, wrong. As Peter was saying, it means uprising and uprising against oppression when one should support it. Uh, using the term uh, from the river to the sea can mean all kinds of things. Um, there are 7 million Jews living between the river and the sea and 7 million Palestinians. Uh, historically, uh, speaking about from the river to the sea, or in fact, both banks of the river in the traditional um, Zionist revisionist ideology meant that the Jews should be in control of Eretz Israel, of the, sorry, of, of the land of Israel. I apologize. Repeat. Sorry. 
Uh, Repeat that point. Yeah, sorry. Um, so um, the 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 turn from the river to the sea, uh, um, or uh, Greater uh, Israel, which means Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, uh, that land stre- stretches between the Jordan. Uh, <sighs> We're hearing you fine. Between- yeah, I'm sorry, I'm getting an interruption here. Um, uh, means uh, the land between the Jordan and the sea. And in fact, for some of the traditional uh, revisionist movement, the right wing of the Zionist party man- meant also across uh, the river, even east of the river, uh, into what is now known as uh, Jordan, Transjordan at the time. So um, uh, to, to, to say that that is an anti-Semitic term, or that it calls for the genocide of the Jews, is nonsense. It can mean, uh, if you look at it from the point of view of the Israeli right, that um, Jews have the right to uh, rule over all the land of Israel. And many of the people who are now in Netanyahu's government, the the, the settler right-wing uh, Jewish supremacists, such as Ben Gvir and Smotrich, they would like to rule over all the land, and they would like the Palestinians to go away or to agree to be ruled over by uh, the Jews. Now, it can also mean the opposite. If you look at what Hamas has been saying, it can mean exactly the opposite. Hamas indeed wants to create a an Islamic Palestinian state where Jews would either have no room or would have to be <clears throat> living there in smaller numbers and be tolerated. And, and so it does not mean what people say unless you ask them, what do they mean? Um, and in that sense, putting these um, um, these three presidents um, to answer these questions, to my mind, A, they should have said, look, um, the, if you speak about genocide, no one should condone genocide, not of Jews and not of anyone else. If you speak about intifada or about political slogans, you have to explain what they are, how we understand them. But beyond that, I, I have to say that this whole discussion seems to me to be uh, the, the least important issue. What is most important is that Israel now is has been conducting a war for weeks and weeks in which it has um, uh, killed thousands and thousands of Palestinians. It has moved them to a very small part of the Gaza Strip. It has destroyed their property and has not even made a commitment to allow them to return, and has been doing that with enormous amounts of American-supplied munitions, not only rockets, but also tank shells, um, artillery shells, and anti-rocket rockets. And that has to stop, and there has to be a political plan as to how to move to the next day, which is what Netanyahu is refusing to do. This is the main issue, not how we talk about politics on American campuses. That's a, that's that's useful to talk about it, but it's not the main emergency issue right now, to my mind. I wanted to ask you two questions. You're in Paris, France now, but you're generally in Cambridge, and you're a professor at Brown University in Providence. Um, what should uh, Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard, do you feel at this point should she do? Um, hundreds of Harvard professors have rallied around her. And I also wanted to ask about Hisham Awartani. 
who is the Brown University student, a student at your school, um, who was shot with two other Palestinian students in Burlington, um, could well be paralyzed, a horrifying situation. I mean, I think there's no question that anti-Semitism is increasing around the country, and that is very serious, and also Islamophobia. Yes, I mean both. Both are, of course, increasing, and 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 we should do everything we can against them. And what happened with Hisham and the and the other two Palestinian st- students is is horrible. In some ways, I would say it reflects both the 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 heated discussion that that we have about Israel Palestine, and also the kind of gun culture and violence that we have in America, quite separately from what is happening uh, in in the Middle East. Uh, as for resignations of presidents, I, I, I think this is this would be terrible. Um, I totally support uh, those. I'm, I'm, I'm not a Harvard faculty; my wife is, but I totally support uh, those people who who ref, who who have come out against her her resignation. I think it would give completely the wrong signal uh, because the pressure is coming in large part uh, from donors. Um, that will create an impression that there is pressure from uh, moneyed people, that there's pressure from uh, often people who are identified with Jewish interests, with right-wing Israelis, with the Israeli government, to control speech. Uh, and just as there has been, I, I must say, and, and that was reflected in the responses by these presidents, great sort of timidity, in saying anything that is not correct speech to correct it the other way, to try and control it in a way that does not allow criticism of Israel, presents criticism of Israel's anti-Semitism, and to do it by firing, the, for instance, uh, at Harvard, the first African-American president of Harvard would be an absolute disaster, and I would totally oppose it. I wanted to uh, end by asking Peter Beinert about uh, Democratic Congress member, uh, uh, Republican Congress member Stefanik and her history. This is Democratic Congress member Jamie Raskin of Maryland speaking on MSNBC. With lax Republican gun laws across the country, we've got to take very seriously anybody who's making any kind of violent threats, especially genocidal threats. Having said that, uh, where does Elise Stefanik get off lecturing anybody about anti-Semitism when she's the hugest supporter of Donald Trump, who traffics in anti-Semitism all the time? She didn't utter a peep of protest when he had Kanye West and Nick Fuentes over for dinner. Nick Fuentes, who doubts whether October 7th even took place because he thinks it was some kind of suspicious propaganda move by the Israelis. And the the Republican Party is filled with people who are entangled with anti-Semitism like that. And yet somehow she gets on her high horse and lectures a Jewish college president from MIT. So last year, Republican Congress member Elise Stefanik of New York was criticized for seeming to endorse the racist great replacement conspiracy theory, the white supremacist theory maintaining white people are being replaced by people of color and that Democrats are deliberately trying to deluge the U.S. with immigrants in order to gain an electoral advantage. Um, we all know what happened in Charlottesville, the mass protests where um, the Trump-supporting white supremacists kept repeating, Jews will not replace us. Um, 
Peter Beinert, can you respond to the woman who's taking these women presidents, at least attempting to, and succeeded in the case of UPenn President Miguel down? First of all, there's a tremendous irony in the fact that Elise Stefanik is supposedly so upset about people saying Palestine will be free from the river to the sea because Elise Stefanik supports the existence of one country which denies Palestinians basic rights between the river and the sea. And as for the idea that she is some she has some great concern for Jews, as you said, she's actually trafficked in the same great replacement theory that is what motivated the Pittsburgh shooter because of this insane idea that Jews are bringing in black and brown immigrants into the United States to replace white people. Elise Stefanik does, it's not, doesn't actually care about Jews. What she, be, what she believes in is ethno-nationalism. She believes in a white Christian state in the United States, and she's sympathetic to forces in Israel that believe in a Jewish supremacist state because fundamentally she's hostile to the basic principle that people should be treated equally under the law, irrespective of race, religion, or ethnicity. She's hostile to it in Israel-Palestine. She's hostile to it in the United States. That's what motivates her. I want to thank you both for being with us. We'll continue, of course, to cover this issue. Peter Beiner, editor-at-large of Jewish Current, and Omer Bartoff, professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown University, author of a number of books, including most recently Genocide, the Holocaust in Israel-Palestine, First-Person History in Times of Crisis. Next up, the State Department's bypassing Congress to send nearly 14,000 rounds of tank ammunition to Israel. We'll speak to Josh Paul, who resigned from the State Department to protest the Biden administration's push to increase arms sales to Israel amidst its seize, siege on Gaza. Back in 20 seconds. Little boxes on the hillside. Little boxes made of ticky-tacky. Little boxes on the hillside. Little boxes all the same. There's a pink one and a green one. And a blue one and a yellow one And they're all made out of ticky-tacky And they all look just the same And the people in the houses All went to the university Where they were put in boxes Little Boxes, performed by Malvina Reynolds. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. As the death toll in Gaza reaches 18,000, the Biden administration's bypassing Congress to approve the sale of 14,000 rounds of tank ammunition to Israel. The sales valued at more than $106 million. Secretary of State Tony Blinken informed Congress of the plan Friday night, saying, quote, an emergency exists that requires the immediate sale. Congress was notified just hours after the United States vetoed a U.N. Security Council resolution calling for a Gaza ceasefire. Democratic Senator Chris Van Hollen of Maryland criticized the State Department's decision to bypass Congress. He told The New York Times, quote, the administration's decision to short-circuit what's already a quick time frame for congressional review undermines transparency and weakens accountability. Well, we're joined right now by Josh Paul. In October, he resigned from the State Department to protest the Biden administration's push to increase arms sales to Israel amidst its siege on Gaza. Josh Paul had served as director of congressional and public affairs for the Bureau of Political Military Affairs in the State Department, which oversees arms transfers to Israel and other nations around the world. Josh Paul, your response to this move Friday night. 
Uh, first of all, thank you very much for having me. It's good to join you. Uh, I'm sorry it's in such circumstances. I think what this move demonstrates is that nothing has changed in U.S. policy. Uh, two months into this awful conflict, uh, almost 20,000 deaths later, so much suffering later, uh, U.S. policy remains that we will continue to flow arms to Israel uh, and to support its operation in Gaza. Uh, I think we have heard Secretary Blinken and others speaking up and saying that there needs to be a reduction in civilian casualties. Uh, But I think actions speak louder than words. You know, I've been thinking a lot these past weeks uh, of Lewis Carroll's Walrus and the Carpenter. Uh, When you see the U.S. bemoaning uh, Palestinian civilian deaths and yet continuing to provide the arms that are consuming the people of Gaza, uh, it's extremely distressing and problematic. So let's see. Secretary of State Pompeo um, under Trump previously used the emergency provision in 2019 for arms sales to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Can you talk about the financial scale of over $1.8 billion and the types of weaponry purchased during that time and how that relates to now? Yes, I think that's an interesting counterpart to what's happening now, because, of course, at that time, uh, Secretary Pompeo under President Trump uh, was supporting the uh, Saudi-led coalition in Yemen. And in that conflict, many thousands of civilians, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands uh, died as well, many of them, again, uh, through the use of U.S. arms. Uh, In fact, the first thing that President Biden did upon coming to office in this space was to suspend arms transfers to the Saudi-led coalition uh, of precision-guided munitions precisely because uh, he cared about the the civilian casualties that were being harmed. And yet here he is using the same authority uh, as President Trump, as Secretary Pompeo, to override congressional will, to override congressional uh, oversight. Uh, I think one thing that we need to keep an eye on is that in the wake of the decision to use the emergency authority under President Trump, um, that um, uh, Congress actually moved forward with 27, the Senate uh, passed 27 joint joint resolutions of disapproval uh, to block these arms transfers after a ruling by the Senate parliamentarian that they could do so. Will Congress act in a similar way in this effort? I doubt it, but we will have to see. Josh Paul, can you talk specifically about the 120 um, millimeter M830A1 high explosive anti-tank multi-purpose with tracer MPAT tank cartridges that are part of this deal? I probably said some part of that wrong. No, I think you got it right. Those are essentially standard issue tank shells that will be used by Israel's Merkava main battle tanks. Um, These are the tanks that are currently pushing through Khan Yunus in the south of Gaza. Uh, These are the same tanks and same sort of shells uh, that on October 13th uh, killed civilians in Lebanon, including a Reuters reporter uh, in an incident that both Amnesty and Human Rights Watch have described as intentional and targeted by the IDF. Uh, You know, part of the arms transfer review process is to ask whether or not uh, such the weapons that we are providing will be used to commit human rights abuses. Uh, I think we now see a clear record of these precise weapons having been used to commit un- uh, human rights abuses in this conflict. Uh, and yet here we are still flowing them to Israel. I just have to ask before we go, Josh Paul, we spoke to you soon after you resigned from the State Department in October. Um, this was, of course, uh, in the midst of Israel's bombardment of Gaza, which came after the October 7th surprise attack on Israel that killed 1,200. Uh, can you talk about the response uh, of your colleagues at the State Department? Have others resigned in other parts of the government? 
so we have seen, uh, certainly from the UN, uh, UN senior official Cade McIver resigned. We have not seen, to my knowledge, uh, significant resignations within the US government. But I have heard and continue to hear uh, from many of my former colleagues uh, who are really trying to find what mechanisms they can use to slow this down, to change the policy. Uh, I fear that their efforts at this point continue to be in vain. I think we need to see a, a policy change from the top. Uh, but I know a lot of good people are continuing to make the argument. My last question to you goes back to 2021. In a recent CNN interview, you discussed a disturbing story of a 13-year-old Palestinian child raped by Israeli forces. Can you outline what you understand happened? Yes, there was a report by a charity called Defense of Children International uh, Palestine. That's the Palestine branch of this global charity. Uh, in which this child had been taken into Israeli custody, which is, of course, itself uh, a question we should be asking why there are children uh, in Israeli custody without charge in the Moskabia prison in Jerusalem, uh, who was raped by his prison guards as part of his interrogation. Uh, this report came to the State Department's attention. Uh, we looked at it. We considered it valid. Uh, we raised it with the government of Israel. Uh, and the next day after it was raised by uh, the State Department, actually by MC Jerusalem, with the government of Israel, uh, the IDF, the Israeli security forces, went into the charity's office, into Defense of Children International Palestine's offices, and ransacked it, uh, and several months later declared them and several other Palestinian NGOs a terrorist organization. I think sexual violence is such a horrific event, and we need to condemn it wherever it happens, uh, whether it happens in the kibbutzes of Israel or whether it happens in the prisons of Israel. Josh Paul, veteran State Department official who worked on arms deals and resigned in protest of a push to increase arms sales to Israel amidst the Gaza bombardment. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we turn now to look at how uh, the Biden administration is facing widespread condemnation around the world for vetoing a U.N. Security Council resolution Friday calling for a Gaza ceasefire, the Palestinian U.N. envoy Riyad Mansour criticized the U.S. veto. It is disastrous that the Security Council was again prevented from rising to this moment to uphold its clear responsibilities in the face of this grave crisis, threatening human lives and threatening regional and international peace and security. The U.S. Deputy Ambassador to the United Nations, Robert Wood, defended the U.S. decision to veto the ceasefire resolution. The United States engaged in good faith on this text. We propose language with an eye toward a constructive resolution that would have reinforced the life-saving diplomacy we have undertaken since October 7, increased opportunities for humanitarian aid to enter Gaza, encouraged the release of hostages, <clears throat> and the resumption of humanitarian pauses, and laid a foundation for a durable peace. Unfortunately, nearly all of our recommendations were ignored, and the result of this rush process was an imbalanced resolution that was divorced from reality, that would not move the needle forward on the ground in any concrete way. And so, we regretfully could not support it.
The United Nations General Assembly will hold an emergency session on a Giza, Gaza ceasefire Tuesday to talk more about the U.S. veto of the U.N. Security Council um, resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. We're joined by Shibli Talhami, professor of peace and development, University of Maryland, also senior fellow at the Center for Middle East Policy. He's co-editor of the book, The One State Reality, What is Israel, Palestine. Professor Tahami, thanks for rejoining us. Talk about the significance and the reaction to the U.S. veto of the Gaza ceasefire resolution. Well, it's an extraordinary act. I mean, think about it this way. Um, uh, whatever the representative of the U.S. says, um, there were 13 members, including pro-U.S. members like France, who voted for the resolution. Only one other country did not vote for it to abstain. That's the UK sticking with the US. So think about this. This is the US trying to take a leadership role globally on many issues, including Ukraine. And it goes against a, 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 a global consensus on an issue that is humanitarian. This resolution didn't call for an end to the fighting and a ceasefire that ends the fighting. It called for humanitarian ceasefire. Every international human rights organization and aid organization. I talked to two heads of aid organizations just last week. They said there is, it's impossible to address the humanitarian crisis in Gaza without a ceasefire. You can't just trickle it in. The, the, the needs are so massive that you need a ceasefire uh, to deal with that. If you look at it also from the point of view of even American uh, public opinion, you have a majority of Americans, according to polls, who support a ceasefire. You have, from the president's point of view, two-thirds of Democrats who do not approve of the Israeli military action in Gaza. And it's not just Democrats. You have essentially uh, two-thirds of, uh, of, of people of color, as, as Gallup polls them, including African-Americans, Hispanics-Americans, Asian-Americans, uh, Native Americans. You have a majority, two-thirds of young people of all types, not just Democrats, who uh, oppose uh, disapprove the operations. You have a majority of women. It, essentially, every major constituency of the Democratic Party, the president's Democratic Party, who wants this, and the president goes against it, the international against it and the international community. Think about what that does to America's standing in the world, uh, let alone obviously to continuation of the death and destruction in Gaza. And I want to say here that it is the puzzle for me as somebody who has uh, known the president before he became president, uh, somebody who's been watching, and I'm a realist in terms of how politics takes place, I'm still shocked by the degree to which this decision that has been taken vis-a-vis -vis this particular crisis after October 7 has been a personal decision by the president of the United States. Uh, it was really acting on his preferences, uh, his beliefs, Rather, it seems to me, than the consequences for American foreign policy and for America's national interests, uh, which have been huge from the beginning, it could have been anticipated that his massive support and the, even the backing of this vague idea of destroying Hamas was going to lead inevitably to mass destruction in Gaza. And it was going to, therefore, also bring possible blowback on the U.S. because the U.S. now is seen as a sponsor of this war, as a party to this war, uh, there's a danger of a blowback that would be unfortunate, devastating across much of uh, the Arab and Muslim world that we see now. There's also, of course, the chance of escalation that we see in Lebanon. 
and uh, and uh, perhaps even bringing Iran in a way that would be hugely detrimental to American interests and draw the U.S. in. And the idea that you give, you know, you support Israel's right to self-defense, of course, Israel has a right to defend itself. Every country does. But to give that government to define what is right of self-defense when you know there are members of this government who want a lot more than self-defense, including things that are odds with American interests, that are odds with American values, and to give them license to do so, including the possibility of drawing the U.S. into war with Iran, that's the thing that seems to be shocking to me as an analyst viewing uh, this episode in American foreign policy. Shibli Tahami, we want to thank you so much for spending this time with us, Professor of Peace and Development at the University of Maryland, Senior Fellow at the Center for Middle East Policy. Next up, we speak to a doctor in Gaza. Stay with us. Here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. United Nations Palestinian aid agency UNRWA is warning society in Gaza is, quote, on the brink of full-blown collapse as Israel continues its devastating assault that's killed 18,000 Palestinians in Gaza, including over 7,000 children. We turn now to a doctor in Gaza, Ahmed Maghrabi. He works at Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus, one of the few hospitals still functioning in southern Gaza. We reached him yesterday. Hello, Dina. Yeah, I'm I'm talking uh, to you uh, from the Nasser Hospital. It's in Khan Yunus, south of Gaza. Where I'm, where I'm working as a head of plastic and burn department. It's been 64 days since the aggression actually started uh, against uh, Gaza. Uh, I can tell you here, actually, I'm working since the beginning of this war. Actually, I'm so exhausted, so exhausted. 40% of the injured people from explosions are children. They are seriously injured. Actually, this morning, actually, I'm working since early morning till midnight, every day, every day. Uh, we, are, we are here at the hospital, actually, it's like a siege. All troops around us. Uh, what is going here, actually, is a real, a real massacres all over around. If you see the pictures and the videos, actually, you'll be shocked. There is no, any, there is no, no words, in, no words can describe what is going here. What is going here actually is a real genocide. You know, hundreds and thousands 
of people actually are, pass are passing away every day because of these attacks. They're attacking schools, they're attacking church, malls, civilians areas, everywhere, everywhere they're attacking. Oh my God, I can't describe what is going here. It's a massacre, massacres, what is going here. The entire families are whipping, are whipped out actually. Uh, I don't know really. I'm, 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 actually, I became, I developed like psychological disorder to see these children actually are, you know, how to say it, like, like, how to say are, it's, 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 it's I don't know how, uh, it's, they are, they are burned till bone. They are burned till bone children. If you see my page, can you you will see all these you know horrible. It's it's, it's horror, horror, uh, horror. What is going here? My God, I hope this will end soon. Anybody? I don't know if anybody could help us. If you hear me, actually, I thought we are alone here in this world. We are living in big prison under strict siege. Actually, and nobody listened to us. Nobody want actually to to, to actually to. How to do, to adopt our Palestinian narrative? Actually, everybody listen to Israeli narrative. Just listen to to Palestinian narratives. We are here living under strict siege in a big prison. We are human being. Me, like you, I'm a human being. I'm human being. I want to live in peace. I want a better future for my children. Really, that's I want. That's I want. You know, actually, Israel supported by the whole world. You give Israel these mass destruction weapons, but in the other hand, nobody gives us even food. Here I can't find food, clean water. Me as a surgeon, I can't find clean water to drink. I can't find food. I eat only once a day, Dina. Yes, once a day. I can't afford my children food. I can't see my children because I can't provide symbol, symbol, you know, uh, for, for as a food for living, I can't, I can't, I can't provide this food to my children. They eat once a day, simple rice. You know, my she, yeah, my, my little daughter yesterday, two years old, she asked me, you know, she asked me apple, an apple. There's nothing here, nothing here. We are dying from starvation. From every everything, we are dying now. All over, actually, they, they send these rockets over our heads everywhere, every time. Please, please stop this war against us. Please stop genocide against us. Stop this war, please, please. I beg you. Dr. Ahmed Mugrabi, who works in Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus, which was one of the few hospitals still functioning in southern Gaza. We end today's show with Dr. Tarak Lubani, emergency room medical doctor who works at the London Health Sciences Centre in Ontario, Canada. In 2018, Dr. Lubani was among 19 medics shot by the Israeli military in Gaza. In October, he was arrested for nonviolently protesting for a ceasefire. He's a Palestinian refugee, a member of the GLIA Project, creating open-source medical devices for low-resource settings. You hear your colleague in Nasser Hospital talking about not being able to feed his own children, not to mention what's happening in the hospital. Dr. Lubani, you're in constant contact with medical staff in Gaza. Tell us what you understand at this point. What Dr. Ahmed's saying is exactly what we're hearing all across the Gaza Strip from the hospitals there. Really, the situation, it's not teetering on, verging on collapse. It has, the, the medical system has fully collapsed. 
And the only reason we are using these words to mitigate the devastation and the absolute collapse is because the absolute bravery and incredible resourcefulness of the Palestinian doctors who have done just an amazing job uh, trying to provide care for their patients. These are people, these are doctors who themselves, like you said, are starving, literally starving. Uh, they themselves are getting killed, are being arrested, are having their families harmed. And still they show up to work every day like Dr. Ahmed does bravely and to, to face a new day of horrors. Are telling doctors to leave their patients, particularly in northern Gaza, and move south. Also, uh, doctors like the head of um, um, the ha hospital in uh, in northern Gaza ha are being arrested. Can you talk about what you understand at this point? The arrests are a new dimension here. You know, we've always been used to a doctor here and there being killed. However. We've had over 250, I, I think it might even be up to 300 now, healthcare workers who have been killed during this war on Gaza. As well, Dr. Mohammed Abu Silmiya was one of the first arrested, but I can tell you the story of one of my students, a young doctor who graduated only a couple of years ago, who I've been teaching throughout his residency. He was an emergency medicine doctor. And he, he was, in fact, a valedictorian, Saleh Alewa, the, the um, highest ranking student in his medical class, a delightful human being who had never stopped smiling and then was arrested because he wouldn't leave his patients until it was too late. He was at El Shifa Hospital. That's the story. His story is one of 41 stories that we have so far. Only a few of them have been released since. What the people who have been released tell us is that they are being tortured right now. They're being, quote, interrogated. And I know this because I've been in Israeli jails. I've been interrogated in those ways. I've been tortured. I've been beaten. And so I know what they're experiencing. And that was for me as a young Canadian. Now, what mind you, these people who the Israelis want to see confessions from, who the Israelis are convinced are doing bad things, despite the fact that all they have done throughout this war and ever is take care of their patients. Dr. Tarek Labani, if you can talk about the warnings that the death toll uh, could be dwarfed by those who die of diseases now, um, with the lack of clean water, um, the close proximity of everyone now um, being pushed south, diseases like um, diarrhea, scabies, measles, meningitis, acute viral hepatitis. What do you understand? Before this war, the hospitals in Gaza were full because things happen to people day by day. And now those chronic diseases, the people with those chronic diseases like diabetes or diseases that need medications or cancers, those patients are all starting to die. It's been two going on three months now that they haven't been able to receive proper care. And that means proper medical care. Now, the foundations of life aren't proper medical care. Their water, their food, their psychological safety. And so people are starting to die from those things as well. We've already had our first starvation deaths. Predictably, they're in the very young and the very old. And as time goes on, we will see these deaths start to come in from the margins, come in from people who are sick and vulnerable to everybody. Because right now, the normal Palestinian has not in Gaza has not been able to eat or drink for for weeks, if not months. 
when we're talking about the treatment of many of these of these problems that they're facing right now, the treatment is proper food, it's rest, it's clean water, and those things are not available. So yes, the the predictions right now is that in the next few weeks, it'll be like falling from a cliff and we'll see 20, 30,000 people dying. Dr. Tarek Lubani, I want to thank you for being with us. Canadian Palestinian Emergency Room doctor joining us from London, Ontario. Spent years traveling to and working in Gaza. Democracy Now! produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warnoff, Trina Nadura. I'm Mimi Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.